You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 149, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Dan Halperin, who's an adjunct professor at University of North Carolina. He's an epidemiologist. He's well-published. He also served a very prominent role in the African Division for the United States in the USAID program for HIV. And he's written a lot about COVID. We're going to discuss one of his papers that he wrote at Real Clear Politics. We're also going to discuss his book that he wrote, which is basically 12 Myths and 12 Facts about COVID that you can still get on Amazon. The links, of course, will those be included on the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 149. I'm sure you'll enjoy this interview as much as I did. It was a lot of fun talking to Dr. Halperin and really getting a, another perspective from someone who's an expert, who's looked at the numbers, who's had a deep dive into the epidemiological data on comparing countries like Sweden and Belgium and the United Kingdom and Spain and the United States and looking at a lot of the papers on what we know about COVID as far as is it pre-symptomatic spread? Is there asymptomatic spread? We know there's symptomatic spread, but it's important to flesh out the nuances of COVID as we've done in this show for the last year and a half. There are nuances here. They're not just two camps. There are people who are right, people who are wrong. And I'd like to think that the people who are right are not always right, and people wrong are not always wrong. It's somewhere in the middle, sometimes more towards one end or the other. But either way, we have to come to a realization that some people might be right and wrong. And we have to have a discussion about this. And this is something that I feel like we're starting to have at times. But as soon as there's a new revelation, new program, a new mandate or decision made by usually the federal government at this point, then we can't have any discussion about it until it's fully implemented. And then we can discuss about the implications or the ramifications for what we're doing. That is not the way this should work. We should have honest discussion, debate, and really decide, are what we're doing necessary? Is it something that makes sense? Is it something that actually is going to accomplish goal? And what are the costs and what are the benefits to whatever intervention we're doing? We have to also really understand the goals of what we're looking for. I've talked about it from the beginning. If we're deciding that this is an endemic disease, then we have to decide what it is that we're doing and whether it actually makes sense. Because that is a totally different approach than if we have something that we think we can eradicate or we can prevent people from ever getting. And our assumption on this show has been since last April that you will at some point run into and contract SARS-CoV-2 and you will be infected. You could potentially be vaccinated again and again and again with multiple booster doses, but essentially you're going to end up at the same place at some point anyway. And so what is our goal for the vaccine? What is our goal for schools, for masks, for basically everything? And so we need to take the knowledge that we do have and not ignore it and say, well, that's no longer important because a lot of these things we discussed today for instance, 
whether you can transmit SARS-CoV-2 on a surface, we know that is patently not true, or it's almost non-existent actual ability to transmit that way. Yet, we have policies, we have regulations set forth by federal regulators and OSHA and HHS that make us do things that we know are of no benefit, at least in stopping SARS-CoV-2. Now, obviously, it is a good idea to wash your hands. No one would ever argue that it's not a good idea to wash your hands. I'm actually disgusted if you don't wash your hands if you go to the bathroom, right? And you should frequently wash your hands if you're in the hospital. When you see a new patient, don't see a new patient. That always has been the case. And that there's no reason not to do that. But we have to recognize that that strategy is not what's going to prevent someone from getting SARS-CoV-2 or transmitting it. That's just a fact. That's okay. It doesn't mean that we don't ever wash our hands again. But we have to recognize what is actually making a difference in this situation. Because by glossing it over, by going on to the next scare, we are not giving people trust in our institutions, in our public health officials. And if we're not telling the full story or telling them, when, hey, we realize that things have changed as far as what we have learned, they're not ever going to believe the next step, which may be very important for them to understand. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about these myths, these facts. And I think, again, the book is excellent. I'd highly recommend it. And it's my plug. It'll be, of course, available at the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 149. But without further ado, Dr. Dan Halpern, an epidemiologist, is asymptomatic spread of SARS-CoV-2 a thing? Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my friend, Dan Halpern. Dr. Halpern is an adjunct full professor at the University of North Carolina School of Public Health. He was previously faculty at the University of Harvard uh, since 2006. He has his BA from UCAL Berkeley. He also got his master's and PhD at Berkeley because he liked it so much. He's highly published. He has an early focus on HIV, and he spent um, a lot of time, and I can't remember the name exactly where you were, but with a government agency where focused on AIDS and HIV and setting policy. And we were going to discuss a recent book of his and a paper that he's written. So, Dan, thanks so much for joining the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And where exactly were you working in uh, with the U.S. government? So for, for about five or six years, I was the primary HIV prevention advisor of the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, USAID. I was based in D.C. for a few years and then in Southern Africa, where, of course, okay. which was the epicenter and still is of that pandemic. Absolutely. And you're visiting us today from beautiful Southern Spain. So a little bit nicer weather, although I have to say we've got 70 degree weather here in West Michigan, which is has to be about 30 degrees above normal. So we're right. enjoying our extended summer here, here in right. Michigan. So let's talk first about your book. So you wrote a book last year, although you've been updating it. Uh, continuously, uh, called Facing COVID Without Panic, which is something that we could all use a lot less of, 12 Common Myths and 12 Lessons, uh, Known Facts About the Pandemic, and clearly explained by an epidemiologist. And so I thought it was proper to have an actual epidemiologist discuss epidemiology on the show about COVID. We've had sort of virologists, immunologists, infectious disease specialists. And so it's nice to have an epidemiologist. We can talk about the numbers and sort of the all these sort of epidemiology things, because that's always one of the things thrown at you. If you try and make any assertion on COVID, well, you're not an epidemiologist. So thanks for joining. Thanks for joining me. And I suppose even though you are an epidemiologist, you probably get that thrown at you as well. Yeah. Well, different things get thrown. That's true. <laughs> it's, it is, by the way, I don't know how to say this, but it is discomforting how most epidemiologists uh let's just say i don't always necessarily see eye to eye and that isn't just only true with covid it was also true with hiv and i think it's not so true i think there's a lot of diseases and a lot of issues where there wouldn't be that much divergence but i think those two really stand out and that maybe that's why i wrote a book about each of those pandemics but uh, both of them were incredibly politicized or have been incredibly politicized. And that's probably has something to do with the divergence. Do you feel, uh, and before we talk about your book, and this is an interesting point that I guess, because I, I remember HIV sort of, I mean, I like to think of myself young, my uh, kids feel otherwise, uh, but I remember HIV when it first came out in the eighties, you know, first it was the mysterious disease. And then it was, then there was a lot of confusion about how you can contract HIV and eventually get AIDS and, and the populations at risk and those sorts of things. How do you feel that this pandemic 
is to the HIV because HIV was a pandemic. It was obviously the people at risk is different than now where it's kind of a respiratory. So kind of everybody's sort of at risk, but how do you feel they were similar and different in, in the way that it's been approached by, you know, world governments or uh, the media? Right. Yeah. That certainly about 17, 18 months ago, that's one of the main things that really drew me into COVID. I wasn't planning to get sucked into it, but I did. And I think it was kind of deja vu all over again feeling, um, so, and in fact, the first article that I wrote about COVID-19 was called Learning from Past Pandemics. It was published in a peer-reviewed journal in May of last year, um, so almost a year and a half ago now, and that was making a lot of parallels between the two. And in my book, the, especially the introduction of my book, I, I make parallels. Um, yeah, well... AIDS is, there are certain, obviously there's some huge differences between them as well, obviously. Um, the book that I co-authored on HIV AIDS with Penguin, Penguin Press books, um, we actually, the whole first third or so of that book is about the origins of HIV. So HIV became known to us in the very early 1980s. In fact, in San Francisco, where I'm originally from, um, but as we talk about in our book, it actually originated long before that, um, probably roughly about 100 or even a little over 100 years ago in uh, what is today Cameroon. Um, but of course, it was kind of a silent, uh, re relatively small killer until um, at least the 70s or 80s. Um, but then the similarities that you're asking about of when it really burst on our consciousness in 1981 and 82, it was this unknown phenomenon. We didn't even know it was a pathogen at the beginning, but this unknown path, this unknown phenomenon that was, was killing people. And so it was unknown. It was, it was fatal and pretty quickly started instilling a lot of panic and fear. Um, so there you begin to see the similarities, of course, with COVID. Um, and it didn't take too long for scientists to figure out that HIV or that AIDS was caused by a virus. Of course, there was controversy for many years whether it really was caused by a virus. But the bulk of the scientific community by 1983, 84, realized that it was caused by a virus, which became named HIV. Um, with COVID, of course, we knew right away that it was a, a type of virus or Right, retrovirus. Both of them are actually retroviruses, and um, and so you have a pathogen that's new, right, or seemingly new, um, and that's interesting. By the way, this little aside with HIV, it's believed quite possible that simian, uh, the the simian version SIV that has been endemic in great apes, especially chimpanzees, probably for thousands of years, it's quite likely that it passed over, that crossed over to humans possibly numerous times over the millennium, but never became a, an epidemic or a pandemic. So it's quite possible HIV has been around for a long time, but it really didn't become a global pandemic. And, and the name of our book, by the way, was Tinderbox. And so we, it's this notion that the virus has always been around but certain conditions had to be present for it to explode into a global pandemic. And right. so with COVID-19, it's a bit similar in the sense that certainly other coronaviruses have been around for a long time. This particular form, it seems novel, but other coronaviruses, it's kind of fascinating. Actually, when I, when I wrote my book on COVID oh, well over a year ago, there were certain parts of the book that some of my colleagues thought was kind of eh, iffy. And one of them was toward the end of the conclusion. I speculated at that time that COVID could end up basically being, we're not going to vanquish it. And it'll end up being kind of a endemic infection similar to the other four coronaviruses that are common. So about yeah. a third or so of the of cases of the common cold that happen every year and billions of people be getting, get the common cold every year, that about a third of those are caused by a type of coronavirus. What's really interesting, and I, now I now that I've updated the book, I don't know, less than a year ago, there was a biologist, I think is at Yale, 
who did really interesting work looking at the so-called Russian flu pandemic, which was about 130 years ago, so about 30 years before the Spanish um, epi- the Spanish flu epidemic that we all talk about. Right. So this Russian flu pandemic, we don't really know, but it may have killed as many as a million people. It was always assumed to be a type of flu, and now there's almost there's very compelling evidence that it was caused by one of those four coronaviruses. So that same coronavirus that killed a huge number of people 130 years ago now circulates every year, infects hundreds of millions of people, particularly children, and and probably kills a few, but so few that we can't even count how few, but it's potentially fatal, but extremely rarely fatal. I was predicting that eventually the coronavirus too would would become like that but i didn't but the big question is when will it take a year or two yeah right but that seems to be its trajectory that it would become more and more contagious over time and very possibly less fatal and there is the delta variant in particular is certainly much more contagious and there's even some evidence that it may be less fatal although statistically it's still killing a lot of people because it's so contagious but per the the infection fatality rate, the, the number of people who, the percentage of people who die per infection seems to be less even than previous variants. And that would be consistent with evolutionary history. It doesn't always happen, but the general tendency for these kind of viruses is to become more contagious and less fatal. Obviously, both of those situations favor the virus's ability to survive, right? Because if it kills off right. too many of its hosts, that doesn't help it. So there you go. Yeah. Well, and this is what I was talking about with my uh, friend, Dr. David Graham. He's an infectious disease specialist in Billings. People familiar with the show, we talked about OC43 and its emergence in the late 1800s, probably, that the fourth the fourth endemic coronavirus, the most recent one, and how it potentially was the Russian flu. And, uh, and just as you said, we were talking about in April last year about the endemicity of, of uh SARS-CoV-2 and how at that point he felt there was it was inevitable because it had spread so far, even though at that time we did not believe there were any animal reservoirs. And now we know there are. So now we know that it can never be eradicated like, um, you know, smallpox or something like that. But let's talk about your book, which you alluded to briefly there. Uh, you know, we could there are 12 facts and 12 um, myths. We could go through all 12, but let's just talk about the ones I think a little more uh, interesting. So so one, you alluded to the Spanish flu. As, a, as bad as the Spanish flu was, this is killing more uh, and younger people. So this, the Spanish flu is different than COVID. Because I think that oftentimes people say, oh, this is as bad as the Spanish flu, maybe even worse. How is that not true? Right. So the first myth in my book, and by the way, it's, it's uncanny how even though I've updated the book many times, you know, references, newer studies come along and nuances. There was a whole section on vaccines, and that's the part that's changed radically, obviously, from a year and a half ago, because a year and a half ago, I was sure. saying, you know, maybe someday there'll be vaccines, maybe not. So that part right. has obviously been completely revamped. But there are other parts of the book that are almost the same as they were when I first wrote it. And so the first myth is that um, this is no worse than the con- than a bad flu season, basically, or, you know, and right. that's quite true by now, obviously. It, it, there were still people, even some scientists back, you know, April, let's say, of last year, who were still suggesting that it was like a bad flu season. And but I think it's obvious by now you'd have to be a total denialist to, to still believe that. But then the second myth of the book is that this is about as bad as the Spanish flu. And luckily, that's also equally wrong. So and I think that really. I don't know, it's probably too subtle for most readers, but I think subconsciously what I was hinting at by having those be the first two myths of the book, the first two sections of the book, is that in a way COVID-19 is is bookended by these two myths. So right. from a policy point of view, I think that's what makes it so incredibly challenging, right? If If the first myth was not a myth, if it was a complete hoax, if it was just like a bad flu season, then we're then everything's crazy. All the mandates are crazy. All the restrictions are crazy. The whole thing's a complete hoax, and forget the whole thing, right? If the second myth were not a myth, if it was as bad as the Spanish flu, in other words, if it was as fatal as the Spanish flu, because it's 
Spanish flu is at least five times more fatal in terms of infection case fatality. And what's maybe even more important, really, from a humanistic point of view, if you will, is that this COVID is overwhelmingly kills very old people and also people that are very quite sick in terms of chronic illnesses. Right. And the Spanish flu killed really young people, like the average age, I think, was late 20s. So a lot of healthy young people died from the Spanish flu. A lot of children died. So it's a very different kind of profile. But if this were as bad as the Spanish flu, then maybe Australia and New Zealand have it right. You know, we should just lock everybody at home and try and have eradication as much as possible. But the complicated thing, as you know, is that it, it's somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. It's way yeah, worse than right. a typical flu season and way not as worse as the Spanish flu. It's in the middle. And so it's really hard to step on the gas. You don't want to step on the gas all the way or, or just let the gas go completely. And how do you modulate the response so it's not a trivial response, but then not a totally panicked over response. And I think that's been one of the big challenges all along. Yeah, that's actually a good example. <clears throat> one of the other myths you have in there is you talk about asymptomatic uh, people driving this infection, this pandemic. Explain how that is more myth than actually the truth, because that is something that is um, reported all the time. Right. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, Wow. A, a colleague of mine, actually, uh, he's a co-author on a paper that's in press. He coined the phrase policy made by CNN. Um, <laughs> and I think that kind of sums it all up. Yeah. So, you, you know, another example, not to not to avoid your question, I'll get to in a sec, but a, a really great example, which is, of course, one of the myths of my book is in March of last year, right, year and a half ago, some scientists issued a preprint, it was a non-peer-reviewed report of a laboratory experiment where purportedly the virus could survive for days or weeks on certain hard surfaces. That went right. completely yes. viral, the media grabbed on it. Within a week, hand sanitizer sales went through the roof, everybody became obsessive about cleaning, and a year and a half later, we've hardly stopped that and it was turned out to be completely almost bogus and it was it was d it was unmasked by a great paper in the lancet you know probably the world's leading medical journal back in june like 3 months later well over a year ago and still we're we're 15 months after that lancet article and still a lot of people still wipe down their groceries and use hand sanitizer all the time and so it's one of those myths that just, boom, it became a reality. And obviously, if Dr. Fauci and the CDC and all those people were listening to the podcast, which I extremely doubt will happen, but if they were and we asked them, they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've known all along. We've known like forever. The surface is not right. a big deal. But why don't you talk about, well, you know, we have other fish to fry. It's not you know, it's not my, I'm more worried about people dying. So what if some people use hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer needlessly, it's not the end of the world. The issue of asymptomatic transmission, I, you're absolutely right, is a similarly huge myth. And it's amazing to look at the origins of that. So the origins from what I can tell, well, there's two basically, A, intuition. So there was just this intuitive sense that, you know, a lot of transmission was happening from people who are asymptomatic. And then there was an article published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, because um, it was May of last year, that did purported to do two things and mushed them together. So one thing they did sort of okay, although there's some methodological criticisms, but I think it wasn't too bad. They tried to estimate what proportion of all infected people were asymptomatic carriers. And they said roughly, give or take around 40% or so, maybe about <laughs> half even. And that's probably about right. Um, and then, then they also asserted that therefore a huge number of the infections that were happening were due to asymptomatic spreaders. And the data source for that was like pathetic, like with a capital P. I mean, it was basically, they made it look like they were citing data, but when you actually analyze the article, they were citing um, a, a non P 
peer-reviewed report from some researchers in Italy who studied like 10 people who appeared, appeared to have been infected with coronavirus and two or three of them may have been infected. They, the author said may have been infected by asymptomatic carriers. So two or three people in Italy that might've been infected by asymptomatic became the WH, became CDC, Dr. Fauci, everybody's saying about half of all transmission is happening from asymptomatic carriers. It's absolutely unbelievable. So I wrote a letter to the editor, posted online, saying the article should either be withdrawn or at least corrected. To their credit, the journal did publish an article and published about five other letters from people that were very critical of the piece. So to their credit, at least they published our our pieces, but although they didn't appear in print till almost like eight or nine months later or something, but um, but they didn't retract the article and maybe it wouldn't have mattered because it's just like the surface thing. Once it got out there, you know, that right. was it. There, the other thing, and I talk about this in my book, is shortly after that article was published, there was a press conference at the WHO, at the World Health Organization, and one of their coronavirus experts, an American woman actually, was asked because this study, this paper had just been published or, you know, online. And she was asked about asymptomatic transmission. And she, she said, no, 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 we've looked at that really carefully at the WHO and we think it's extremely rare. It probably happens, but it's very rare. Well, this poor woman, I can't pronounce her uh, yes. name. It has a Dutch name, I think, Maria something um, with a K. She was just crucified in the media and again by the experts like Dr. Fauci and others and by the CDC. And they all said, what are you talking about? You are so wrong. And the WHO took a huge amount of flack. A lot of the confusion, of course, is that we have something, we have symptomatic transmission. So people that are coughing or sneezing and spreading the virus, right? And that was clear that that was going on. And then we have this very important piece, which does set make which does make COVID a bit different than other respiratory infections not unique at all but which is what we call pre-symptomatic transmission so these are people that are about to become symptomatic they're about to start sneezing and coughing and they're in the 24 to 48 hour window before that so they technically don't have symptoms yet or they're not aware that they have symptoms and they are they are contagious and there's no doubt about that and so those two kind of got lumped together and you could kind of see why it's not nefarious how do you know you it's true you can't easily know if someone's a pre-symptomatic transmitter or an right, yeah. transmitter until they become symptomatic then you know that they were pre-symptomatic if they never become symptomatic then you know they were asymptomatic all along and that that created confusion and so when people were attacking the WHO and this, this scientist in particular, they were saying, no, 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 look at all these cases. And they were citing cases of pre-symptomatic transmission, calling that asymptomatic. And then WHO had to kind of backpedal and say, oh, no, no, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it all got mushy and, and complicated. Yeah. But even to this day, to this day, there are very few documented cases of truly asymptomatic people transmitting. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, we think children are such inefficient transmitters because the vast majority of children tend to be asymptomatic transmitters. They never become symptomatic. There was a study published in Nature, the journal Nature many months ago from, from Wuhan, China, where they looked at thousands and thousands of contacts of asymptomatic people, and they didn't find a single case of ongoing transmission. In other words, none of those asymptomatic transmitters, I mean, carriers that actually transmitted to anyone else. Yeah. Well, and and the problem, of course, is that that influences a lot of the policy right now. Like you have to wear masks in all sorts of different places because maybe you are, you know, you have to have this asymptomatically and transmit. Certainly in the pediatric population at schools, right? That's like driving a lot of this discussion. Um, so let's talk about some of the facts and things that I guess, you know, people may not be aware of. So one, one is that uh, keeping people home is what has actually driven the pandemic. Explain that because most people think, oh, well that you get people out of the population. That's what's going to keep people healthy and safe. Right. I think that was my second or third. I can't remember anymore. Second or third lesser known facts, I call them. Right. So yeah, well, that was one of the main mantras, especially early on in Europe and the United States in particular was they were, they were understandably afraid of the health systems being overrun. 
And so they told people, you know, don't come into the hospital if you're sick, only come in if you're really, you know, really about to go under, then come in. Um, and it's understandable why they would want to do that. Versus in many Asian countries and in Germany, for example, them they well in the, in in several in China certainly several other Asian countries East Asian countries if somebody was symptomatic right not even necessarily sick but if they were symptomatic or known to be to be positive to be infected they were isolated right they were put in isolation centers and these were not like concentration camps they were usually not right. hotels usually in pretty nice accommodations but where they were isolated but. The idea was get them away from the family before they infect family members. In Germany, a couple other places, they stressed early intervention. So if you're having symptoms, if you're starting to get sick, go to the hospital and they would give people auctions and so on instead of waiting until it's too late to do much for people. But in this, in, in most of Europe and in North America, we said stay home. Well, that what did that what did that do? A you ended up infecting a lot of family members that way because it's right. really hard to avoid infection. And now with the Delta variant, it's almost impossible, it looks like, to avoid infecting family members, whether you're wearing masks or not. And also, of course, a lot of people probably needlessly died because they, by the time they came into the hospital, it was too late to do much for them. So yeah, that was a big, that was a big problem. I mean, another thing that um, we had touched on this earlier, but when it comes to the media, uh, and I think he, whatever camp, if we're going to say there are two camps, whatever camp you fall in, the, the media focus on extreme cases. They don't focus on the average, right? And so, I mean, right, that's, you know, bleeds, it leads, the sensationalism, that's what drives clicks and drives eyeballs. But explain how that's really caused some problems and and that, the, that what you hear is not actually the reality. Right. Yeah, well, that's another one of the, the, the sections of my book. And that, that's a massive, really, issue, I have to say. You know, it happened with AIDS, by the way, of course, where they would obsess on, you know, rare, you know, it was mosquitoes. And then finally, people can said, forget that that does not happening. But there was fear sharing toothbrushes. But even things like oral sex, there was this obsession and it's it, there were probably some extremely rare instances where HIV was was transmitted that way, but there was always this need to look for unusual ways of transmission. I think for two reasons: uh, one, because it's it well, we didn't have clicks back then, in the early days of AIDS, but you know it sells newspapers and so on. Um, but sure. I think the, I think in fairness, there's another reason. And this is so true with COVID too. I actually think that a lot, probably most journalists, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people probably go to journalism school for the same reason that people go to medical school. You know, they want to make the world a better place. They want to help. I really do. I think a lot of journalists, you know, are sort of idealists and want, and they want the world to be better. And they aren't just cynically trying to sell papers, although that certainly happens, but they're also well-meaning. You know, they think, Oh, if people just think that only old people get COVID, then all the young people will run amok and party and infect each other. And then they'll end up infecting old people and then all these old people die. So if the young people are afraid of COVID, right, if we find that rare case of a 25 or 30 year old dying from COVID, if we publicize the heck out of it, yes, we'll, we'll get a lot of clicks, but also we're helping because we're raising awareness it's like we're scaring people for their own good, you know? Yeah. They'll right. be so afraid that they'll take precautions and there'll be less people dying. So I don't think it's just this nefarious motivation. I think a lot of times, because I have several friends that are that are journalists, you know, and I've had lots of discussions with them. And of course, they tend to be very defensive about the media's role. But at the end of the day, for example, I've been asking them for a year and a half, you know, why doesn't the media, I mean, now they have in recent months, finally talked about, for example, this issue of surface transmission and how it's really not how COVID spread, but it took forever. And it's great. Now you see it more and more, but forever, nobody would touch it. And I'd ask them and they'd say, well, I know it's probably scientifically not true, but I don't want to, what they end up saying in so many words, they they say, I don't want to be I don't want someone to die 
as a result of an article that I write. So if I write an article quoting scientists saying, you know, surface transmission is rare, and it turns out those scientists were not right, and it isn't so rare, and somebody doesn't wipe down the groceries and they die of COVID, I'm not gonna be able to sleep at night. So I'd rather err on the side of caution and just not write an article about it. You see? Yeah. So these things just, you know, that's how they go. It's so everything errs on the side of caution, err on the side of caution, err on the side of caution, whether it's the CDC, whether it's Dr. Fauci, whether it's the media, err on the side of caution. Better to be afraid and overly cautious than not afraid and undercautious. Again, not. I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they want. I think Dr. Fauci is probably a wonderful human being, and his main motivation, and overwhelmingly probably main motivation, is to save lives and help humanity. Um, so I don't think there's bad intentionality there. But I think there's not enough awareness of the downside of all this panic creation. Yeah, I. You know, this kind of, this reminds me uh, of Frederick Bastiat, which is kind of a strange reference. Uh, old um well not old but he's from the 1700s i think in france and his his economic lesson was the seen and unseen right there is you know you can't uh you can say well hey we got a million dollars and we built this you know arena what you don't ever see is the million dollars that would have been spent other ways that would have provided benefit to the community which may have been better than the million dollars for the arena in the same sense you could look at it this way too where you have yes we have provided abundance of caution with Say, making sure your kids don't ever get candy that's not wrapped, right? They can't have the Mrs. Johnson who makes the popcorn balls because there might be a needle in it or might be someone might have tampered with your Tylenol or whatever it is that we have these little mini panics, LR and, and apples. Remember that was that time when, you know, if you get to me, the pesticides, but yeah. you lose something. There's a cost to that. There is a cost to, you know, either feeling comfortable in life and not worrying about risks that are so remote that they're not worth worrying about. Um, and so yeah. there are costs to all these things that we just don't ever put in our calculations and and it is sometimes not good to be afraid of everything because it will at a minimum kind of ruin right. ruin life in some sense right right uh, it's it's evolutionary of course right it's 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 sure. wired into who we are so you know a million years ago or or less than a million years ago you're out on the savanna in africa and you know lions are around and you're just chilling out and saying, Hey, you know, cool out, relax. You know, you're going to, you're the one that's going to get eaten by the lion and the one who's afraid is constantly vigilant. They're going to pass their genes on. Right. So there was an obvious survival, you know, advantage to, to being vigilant and worrying about, especially immediate dangers. Right. So it, in the short run, you know, it works, but of course the problem is look at our civilization. So we're, like you say, terrified of Tylenol, kids dying of Tylenol, right? But we'll take the kids out for ice cream and McDonald's. You know, they'll end up being obese and dying of diabetes. You know, right. for every kid that, you know, dies of a Tylenol poisoning, a million people will die of diabetes from obesity. But that's a slow moving thing. I mean, the best example of all, obviously, is climate change, right? So that's so until recently anyway, that was so abstract and so in the future that, well, you know, we've got more immediate things we have to deal with. And so we're going off the precipice, right? And that's just unfortunately how we're wired genetically for these immediate dangers. So a, a, re a virus that's spread res through respiratory is perfect for hitting our panic buttons, right? It can kill you and it could be spread by someone being near you. Whoa, you know, that's just yeah. the perfect setup it's the opposite of, of of diabetes or heart disease or obesity, which kill way more people than COVID. A, kill way more people than COVID. And B, those are the people that are most dying from COVID. I mean, that's the craziest thing. Yeah, right. It. Sure. So if we had, let's say, 10 years ago, started an intense, you know, if we had focused an incredible amount of media and governmental attention on obesity, 10 or 20 years ago, right? And if we had half the amount of obesity in the United States that we have now, maybe half as many people would have died of, or a third as many people would have died of COVID, not to mention all the less people that would have died of diabetes and heart disease and, and cancer from the obesity. But we're not wired to think that way. So, we, so we're worried about the virus. Then the virus comes and say, oh my God, 
you have to be so afraid of this virus. And if you're obese, you really have to be afraid. So it's like we've twisted it around and obesity becomes something to really worry about viruses, but not about having obesity in the first place, right? Right, yeah. Or that junk food industry that's causing a lot of it or, you know, sugar My- and anything, right? I'd have a lot of, I'd have a lot less surgeries to do anesthesia for if we didn't have as much obesity with all the orthopedic, you know, knee sprains, ankle fractures and things like that. And I think to your point about the evolutionary aspect of panic or, um, you know, we're social animals, we live in, we live together. And so there's a huge, uh, benefit to working as one to have the same sort of goals. And, but, uh, on the, along the same lines, there are people who are contrarians, I guess you'd say, and that's sort of hardwired into them as well. And you, and they oftentimes will be the ones, the first ones eaten by the lion, but they might be that same person who discovers fire, right. And provides tremendous benefit to the the group at large. And so you need to have both those people. And so it's, and so that kind of moves on to the next thing I want to talk. You wrote a paper about, about the um, creeping censorship in the name of public health in real, real clear policy. And it sort of goes to this fact, right? You have people who are say, Hey, wait a minute, are we sure we're moving the right direction? And they are removed from the conversation as opposed to being engaged in and said, you know, you're wrong. And here's why. Right. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely. I mean, and you hit the head, you really hit the nail on the head, but uh, you, the, the, the context of your question, I mean, I hear in Spain, it's really interesting. One of the things that, that people who love Spain whether they're Spanish or, or foreigners who live here. One of the wonderful things about Spain is it's a word in Spanish, solidaridad. It's like solidarity. So the refugees that are coming from Africa into Southern Europe, um, Spain has been one of the countries where people are trying to help as much as possible and they'll make donation. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of solidarity for people. And so uh, people in America may remember if they still do a year and a half ago, it's too long ago to remember, I guess. But if people remember <laughs> a year and a half ago, um, Madrid at night, every night, every night at like 8.30 at night, people would get on their balconies when the lockdown, the severe lockdowns and you couldn't even leave your own home. And at 8.30 at night, they would all go on their balcony and bang pots to thank the doctors and healthcare workers that were dealing with the COVID crisis. So there's this tremendous sense of solidarity, which is a wonderful thing. But like everything in life, almost virtually everything has its downside and solidarity can become entrapped by groupthink and even even fascist a kind of fascism you know there's there's a philosopher and i i keep forgetting his name but uh before covid he was one of the most well-known philosophers in italy he was a darling of the neo-marxists of the le- of the left-wing philosophers in italy he's a tremendous critic critique critic critic of capitalism and so on and so on so in that kind of humanistic left-leaning crowd he was like one of the heroes and then a year ago he suddenly became like you know almost like adolf hitler to those people and he became a darling of the right wing in italy and europe why because he wrote a book about covid where he criticizes this group tendency and suggested that these states like Italy, Spain, these European countries, ostensibly democracies, were now, because of a public health emergency, becoming neo-fascist, basically, and making decisions, instead of the Swedish approach, let's say, where it was about educating people and letting people make decisions, they were this kind of top-down, you can do this, you can't do that, and you see that to this day. By the way, that's another fascinating thing politically, is until COVID, for the right wing in the United States, Sweden was the epitome of everything we hate, right? It's like, yes, exactly. You know, yeah. Swedish, those Swedes, those are the socialistic Europeans, the epitome of everything you don't want to be. And now with COVID, the left wing hates Sweden and the right wing, you know, loves Sweden, right? It's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. In Sweden, right, they said, you know, not only to your question, not only are we going to have open discourse, and freedom of speech and debate these things, but we're going to have an evidence-based approach. Like, well, let's look at the evidence. Let's talk about it, you know, and be adults and give guidance to the population. But for the most part, we're not going to impose. We're not going to have lockdowns. We're not going to close schools. We're not going to enforce. We're not going to ask people to wear masks. You know, we're not going to make people wear masks, etc. And 
Sweden was just pilloried by the media and by experts. I mean, there are all kinds of articles you could find them. They're New York Times everywhere last year. One in the New York Times was called Sweden, the COVID cemetery of Europe, because there was like yeah. three days when officially Sweden had the highest uh, mortality rate per 100,000, apparently in Europe. And I, I have a whole section of my book where I talk about what happened to Sweden. And first of all, that wasn't even true because it turns out this Belgians who had the highest in the world consistently, the highest um, per capita death rate from COVID and the Swedes, those two countries were doing by far the best job of anyone in the world at, at tabulating COVID deaths. So they, they got beat up for their own honesty, where other countries, you know, you look at Belgium and Holland side by side, very similar countries culturally and so on. It looked like Belgium's epidemic was way worse than Holland's. But when you actually looked at excess mortality, if you looked at how many people died in 2020 compared to 2019, it was very similar between Holland and Belgium. So all that meant was that Belgium was doing a lot better job than Holland at counting the number <laughs> of people who are dying from COVID. So if you look at excess mortality in 2020 compared to 2019, Sweden is like 23 out of 30 in Europe. It's the vast majority of countries did worse than Sweden. But you wouldn't know that from the media and from the experts. It's like Sweden did everything wrong. And every, so many people died in Sweden. Right. It's so political. But to get to your question, yes, I'm I wrote that op ed a while ago because I'm really concerned not only that people are dying from COVID and not only from the panic that's ensued, but there has been a sacrificing of freedom of speech. And I give the analogy, which most of my colleagues felt was I was going way over the top in this analogy. And I tried to water down and say, look, they're not the same thing, but it, I felt like there was an inkling of McCarthyism. And that's the example I gave. Because in the McCarthy era, you know, in hindsight, we say, oh, it was so terrible. And, you know, civ basic civil liberties went under, the, went under the wayside. But if you actually go back and see what was going on in the early and mid 50s in the United States, and you, and you get inside people's head, you actually see that the majority of Americans supported what McCarthy was doing. And it was right. because there was this incredible fear of the Cold War and of the Soviets. The Soviets, my God, they had the hydrogen bomb. They could wipe out civilization. People were terrified. And they said, you know what? This is so horrible that so what if some people don't have freedom of speech? So what if there's no due process? Right now we have this horrible threat. In hindsight, we realized that was a huge mistake to our constitutional democracy. But at the time, it felt justified. And I think there's an inkling of that with COVID, not just the United States, but as I said, in some European countries, where this is unusual. This is a public health emergency. The usual rules don't apply. So you see now, people will say Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and so on are not government institutions. So the freedom of speech doesn't apply but come on, that's legally true. But we all know that Facebook and Twitter, it's like the phone company. These are how the majority of people communicate now, even though they're private companies. And the government, certainly President Biden, the government is pushing them very hard to crack down on misinformation, which, again, is very understandable. You, people feel like, wow, people are dying. We can't fool around. If people are putting up YouTube saying vaccines can kill you, you know, get rid of it because it's causing havoc and the ERs are full. So I get the impulse. I totally get the impulse. But there's a huge price being paid, not just now, right? Right now, there are legitimate scientists who are having their YouTube removed, having Facebook postings. People have had, people have made Facebook postings and tweets where they cite WHO statistics and those have been removed as misinformation, right? <laughs> Citing a World Health Organization statistic, it's getting cited as misinformation. My own book was not published by Amazon at first. They said it was misinformation. It did not conform to CDC and so on. And I had to appeal and finally they backed down and, and published it. Again, people say, well, that's Am all right. But Amazon publishes Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. So they publish pornography. So they publish pornography. They publish sadomasochism. They publish Adolf Hitler, but they won't publish an epidemiologist who's citing CDC and WHO statistics in a book on COVID. Now, technically, it's not censorship because Amazon has the right as a private company to do whatever they want. But as a large society, we have to grapple with, you know, is that correct? 
And my biggest concern is why this Italian philosopher, his biggest concern is the precedent that it sets for the future, right? So anytime in the future, there's another pandemic or whatever, then there's a, a precedent now that the government can basically do whatever it wants to. It's a public health emergency and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and shut up. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th I think that's most people who have concerns, I think today, they're obviously concerned about the re reaction to the virus. But I think in many parts, it is the fear that something else, which may be less, you know, less concerning or less important, will these same harsh measures will be used to to crack down on um, dissent or, you know, different difference of opinion. Talk briefly about the virologist who helped develop mRNA and how he was sort of I don't know what the word to use is he sort of was ghosted from from the um, from history books. Yeah, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't ask about him actually. <laughs> Cuz he said some things which were taken out of context but even so I, I don't agree with it. I don't even, I haven't studied No, it. that's and that's fine. I but I mean some yeah, of his comments maybe are a little odd or whatever. I I have some colleagues who maybe know much more about him or what he said than I do, or maybe they don't, maybe they're just going based on whatever. Um, but he's been, his name has been sullied, but my, and I mentioned him in my op-ed, not by name, but I mentioned him. It's just, I think it's odd that, you know, somebody who clearly, now he calls himself, I think he's referred to himself or his wife has referred to him as the inventor of the mRNA and other people yeah. say, well, that's a little bit exaggerated, but he was clearly an important person in the development of the mRNA technology decades ago. If you look at the first papers that were cited, he's either the first author or one of the authors. So he obviously had an important role in the development of the mRNA technology. And so the Wikipedia, for example, until you know a couple of months ago, if you look, if you did a Wikipedia for mRNA, it mentioned him several times as being either the innovator of mRNA or one of the pioneers or whatever. And then, of course, as you know, he became concerned about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and felt like they were rushed out too soon and so on. And then the a lot of anti-vaccine people started citing him. And it's like, yeah, he was whitewashed from history that he was, and there's no more mention of him in Wikipedia. I mean, in the references, the references are still there. So if you look in the references, which most people probably don't do, you see his yeah, name, yeah. but he's not referred to anymore in the Wikipedia. Again, some will say, well, Wikipedia is not a government institution and Wikipedia is a bunch of, it's sort of chaotic, right? It's sort of um, democratic. Decentralized. Anarchic. Yeah. Or have you, so you can't blame Wikipedia, but whatever, it's a sign of the times, whatever it is, I'm not saying the government told Wikipedia, you know, remove his name, but it's, but it's disturbing the people anyway, the, 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 the grassroots of Wikipedia ever felt, okay, this is too, this guy's controversial, we'll remove mention of him. And his YouTube, of course, was banned and so on. And I read, read the other day, he's been, he's not, he's out, he's kicked off Facebook and Twitter. I don't know, that's disconcerting. I mean, even in the, even if it's true, and I don't, think it's probably true but even if it were true that he's gone completely wacko and he's just completely nuts i mean he's got a right i think to say what he's going to say and if he's nuts let's expose him as a nut but i mean he did help develop the the technology it doesn't mean he's right but i mean if somebody helped develop the electric car and now they believe the electric car has some fatal flaw for the environment and they're jumping up and down about it. Shouldn't we listen? And then other scientists can say, I'm sorry, sir, with all due respect, you were incredibly important to Delma Electric Car, but this is why you're wrong. Okay, but to just silence the person and just pretend they don't exist, I, it's just a little disconcerting. Yeah, no, I it, I mean, you see this in all parts of life, right? You see Pete Rose is uh, was gambling in baseball while he was actually managing, and I think even playing at the time. And, you know, his records are sort of expunged, but he's not been... It's, he's not been uh, totally removed from history, right? He still exists, and people debate his his role in the game, and you know his his records and things like that. So I don't know. I, I'm with you. I I tend to think it's a strange cultural phenomenon. I don't, and I think um, I think the things will recorrect, and I think it, your reference to McCarthy is probably a good one in the sense that it's very easy for us when we learn about it in school to say, oh my, what are those people thinking? They're crazy in the 50s, but you you don't have the cultural reference, you don't have the historical reference for what life was like at the time and what most people thought. And so I think just like it's entirely possible that we're going to look back on this era for us 20 years from now and we're going to say, 
what were they thinking? They're closing the economy for something that clearly wasn't going to work and it was endemic virus and there's no hopes of it actually controlling it. They were wrong and they were just really wrong. You know, I, I think, and I think to Sweden, I'm kind of summing a lot of things here, but when it comes to Sweden, I think, you know, the book on the response to the virus and how countries did is, has not been written yet. Right. And I think to, to claim victory for Sweden's approach or Belgium's approach is probably not, we're probably not in a position to do that at this point. It probably will take some time, five years, 10 years from now to look back on and say, what was the best approach? But I think it, it's probably reasonable to start having those considerations and to look at it maybe more, more fairly uh, and not treat one position as totally crazy when I think, you know, they were made in good faith, both the decisions. Yeah. Right. Although I don't know. I mean, it'll take more time to fully know or to more to know more, but I mean, COVID's funny. It's, it's different than HIV, since we're talking about that at the beginning, it's different in the sense that it's like time speeded up, you know, it's, it's like for COVID every month is like a year of age or something. In terms <laughs> it of, feels like it. Yeah. You know what I mean? In terms yeah. of scientific, like every, it's not quite as much now, but there was a time when for, it just seemed like every day there was a new study coming out and new, we're learning new things. And the virus itself, of course, has changed over time. And, HIV mutated, but not as quickly. I mean, this mutated, although other viruses mutate much more quickly than, than, than the coronavirus did, but still it has changed quite. We're dealing with a much different coronavirus than we were a year and a half ago. And, and the knowledge has changed, but I think we know quite a bit. We don't know everything now. Sweden, for example, you know, I think, I think even a while ago, it was pretty clear looking at Sweden. It's a real life real case, you know, laboratory, the, no one was ever, certainly I wasn't, and I don't think anyone, certainly not the Swedes, were ever arguing that their approach was best in the sense that they were going to avoid deaths. I mean, I think New Zealand, Australia, you know, Taiwan, a lot of countries really attempted eradication. They really thought we can keep right deaths to like zero. And some of them did a pretty good job for a long time. New Zealand, of course, recently has thrown up its hands and said, okay, we can't eradicate. But the death, the number of deaths in New Zealand and some other places was super low, almost zero. Um, Sweden never attempted that. That was never their goal. On the contrary, in a sense, it was almost the opposite. I mean, their goal, in a sense, was to be to not be panicked and to not shut everything down. But they never claimed, and nobody who, I think, and no intelligent person who was sympathetic to their perspective ever claimed that they were going to do better than other countries in terms of having less deaths from COVID, right? But they, the, the, the goal would be, we're not going to be any worse off in terms of the health impact, but we, we will be better off in terms of kids won't be out of school. People will not be out of a job. People won't have to wear masks all the time. That So that is clear, right? It's clear that people in Sweden have not had to wear masks. It's clear that the kids have stayed in school the whole time. It's clear that they have not shut, the economy's been largely open the whole time. Those, those are facts, they're not opinions, those are facts. And the other yeah. thing to fact is we can look at excess mortality because we have, it's already October of 2021. So we have all the excess mortality day from 2020 and we could compare that to 2019 or 2018 or whatever. And so we can see how Sweden objectively did. And objectively, most countries in Europe did worse in Sweden. But of course, what the media and the experts always do is they, again, somewhat understandably, intuitively, they compare it to the other Scandinavian countries. So they say, okay, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, right? Four countries, they're all Scandinavian. That means they're all about the same culturally and so on. So let's compare them to each other. Norway, Denmark, Finland, all had fairly draconian measures to one degree or another, although masking in schools, they didn't. Fin Denmark and, and Norway never, uh, for the most part, had masking of kids in schools. But otherwise, you know, they shut schools for a long time. Um, they shut down and so on. So they say, okay, what makes Sweden different of those four countries is that they were open, they didn't shut down. So let's look at mortality across those four countries. And it's true the per capita mortality in Sweden has been much higher than it has been in Denmark or Norway. And, and Finland's had very little mortality, relatively speaking. So then they say, aha, 
the Swedish model did not work clearly, right? They were more open. They had way more deaths than the other Scandinavian countries. And that's how 99% of, of journalists and even scientists have talked about Sweden. And what I tried to get out in my book, because it's complicated, but I tried to unpack that and say, actually, if you look closely at Sweden, what you see is the large, almost vast majority of deaths occurred in Stockholm, right? So there's the third largest city in Sweden, I can't pronounce it, but the third largest city in Sweden is near the Norwegian border. I'm sorry, it's near the Danish border, I think. And if you look at the city in Denmark, they're like 50 miles from each other. One's on the Danish side, one's on the Swedish side. They had almost the same mortality from COVID, all right? And yet they had very different policies in effect. So the real issue with Sweden is two things. One, it's not that deaths were high in Sweden because they weren't. It's that deaths were incredibly low in Finland, Norway, and Denmark. If you look at the world, there's like a handful of countries that did really well with COVID mortality. And they include the three of the Scandinavian countries and South Korea, Taiwan, and some other countries that yeah. uh, even Japan had, that had really low infection, you know, case mortality rates. So they, mm-hmm. the number of infections they had or the number of cases they had, mortality is really low. And we have to look at the reasons why. But so Sweden, it's not that Sweden did bad. It's just that those other Scandinavian countries did really well. Okay, that's one thing. And the other thing is, that Stockholm was clobbered. And why was Stockholm clobbered? Because Stockholm is very much similar to, to Amsterdam, to Brussels, to London, to Paris, to Madrid, to Milan, all these European cities with very large immigrant populations, okay? So the immigrant population in, in Stockholm was clobbered. Most of the people who died of COVID in Sweden not only died in Stockholm, but they were immigrants. They were non-Europeans. They were from Africa and Asia and and, in Middle Eastern countries. So they have a different dynamic going on in terms of crowded, you know, there's poverty. So you have, you know, housing units that are crowded. You have occupational issues, the kinds of occupations those people in. The majority of nursing home employees in Stockholm are non-European. They're from Africa, East Asian countries. So so the, the way the media portrayed the Swedish experience was that the Swedish tourists um, went to Italy on holiday in March, February or March of, of last year, came back to Sweden, uh, young people basically came back. Then they then since the bars and restaurants and parks were all open in March and April and May, they were parading around drinking. You see all these pictures, <laughs> look in the newspaper articles, these people in Stockholm in the pubs drinking, you know, carelessly, not using masks. And, and so that's why people died in Sweden when they died. Of course, it was overwhelmingly people in their 80s and 90s, but they died directly and directly because of that relaxed atmosphere. Whereas the scenario that when I looked really carefully at the data on Sweden, the scenario I see is, let's say, Afghani or Somali taxi driver in Stockholm picks up the tourist who's come back from Italy. That tourist is coughing and sneezing, right? Takes them home. Yeah. That Somali or Afghani immigrant goes home where he has an apartment we shares with 10 people. And one of those 10 people is a woman who works in a nursing home, right? You see where I'm going with this. So it's a whole, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. it's oh, not yeah. because the bars and restaurants are open. It's because in Oslo and in Copenhagen, you have, you don't have nearly as big an immigrant community. So the people that worked in the nursing homes in, in Norway were mainly young Norwegians who need money versus so they, you didn't have the same networking of infections. So the whole thing is 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 complicated. But yeah. if you look at Sweden compared to the other European countries, it didn't do that bad in terms of death. It's only when you compare it, we call this cherry picking. There's no reason, you know, ostensibly to come. It's it you can't do that. You can't just say, well, they're Scandinavian, so they're the same. You have to look more carefully at the dynamic. But most people, I think, didn't. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think you see that sometimes in when people are looking at policies for mask wearing, for instance, they'll just pick a random, what seems to be a random time period. And it happens to be the time that cuts off the data that they may or may, they may want or not want, right? Like when there happened to be a local surge and when there's not a surge, oh, let's see the mask worked or whatever. Um, well, I want to be very respectful of your time, Dr. Halpern. Thank you so much for being on The Paradox. I'd highly recommend people check out your book, 
which is, um, again, Facing COVID Without Panic, 12 Common Myths and 12 Lesser Known Facts, which is still available at Amazon, both in e-reader or actual paperback covered. And then I'll links to the to your articles on a Real Clear Policy that we're talking about. Those will be at episode show notes page at the paradox.com slash 149. Thanks again for being on Paradox. And if people want to find other writings you have and things going on, what's a good way for them to follow you on social oh. media? You know, I need to be more involved. I have a... <laughs> There's like a face real academic. Page. Yeah, I'm totally 19th century. I mean, um, there's a Facebook page and the Twitter. I never there. There should be links. My my uni- my University of North Carolina webpage lists the articles. I've probably I've written about 10 articles on COVID. So yeah. the links should be there. And wow, that's an that's a good point though. I need to do a better job. Well, We'll, uh, we'll have links to your stuff on the, the website and a place to send passenger pigeons to get to you. So thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.